BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Yesterday, an old friend of mine, somebody I I actually haven't talked to in probably, I don't know, six, eight, ten years, quite a while, but I've known for at least 40 years, called me up and started going through this. You know, he wanted to just lay out for me the, the reason why Donald Trump was going to continue as president for another four years, why this was so important, because it would ensure the survival of of our republic, that it just went into all this, that the deep state is running everything, uh, including the, and the Fed is part of it, and blah de blah de blah And, and I get it, you know, that, that this, this set of conspiracy theories are traveling like a virus. And, I mean, it was just, it was, it was frankly shocking to me, because this is a smart guy. And it's somebody I've, I've known, you know, for forever. And, um, and I just had to say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I disagree with you. I didn't say you're wrong. I said, I disagree with you. I don't believe those things. Those things don't comport with what I've seen that I believe to be factual. And, uh, you know, I don't want to have this conversation with you. How, how are your parents? How, how's your brother and sister? Let's talk about our families. And we had a nice conversation, you know, about our, our families, and we just stopped talking about politics. But, uh, you know, he, when he first called, he was like, you know, filled with this evangelism, which is like one of the first signs that somebody's the member of a cult, you know, is, you know, cult followers. Here's the thing. And, and if you've ever had, uh, you know, religious zealots uh, approach you and try to convert you, you understand this. But it's, it's uh, something that I, I think most people are broadly unaware of, but is a truth about human behavior. And that is that the things we're certain about, we don't feel any need to convince others of. I mean, when was the last time somebody walked up to you and said, did you know that the earth is round? Now, I get that there are some people who believe the world is flat, and this is another one of those. In fact, again, in this uh, this mind-boggling documentary about social media, specifically about, largely about Facebook, but about social media more generally, um, called The Social Dilemma. Louise and I watched this over the weekend. It's on Netflix. It's free if you have a Netflix subscription. And, uh, you know, it was just like validating everything that I thought I understood about all this, that, that, there is a conspiracy theory that has been spreading on Facebook for a couple of years uh, or for some time now that the world is actually flat and there's people who are actually believing it. And, but in any case, uh, back to my original point, when we have shared consensus about things, in other words, when we all understand that something's real, then we don't feel the need to bring that up hey, did you know that we have, you know, that it's fall, that the leaves are falling off the tree? Oh, you might bring it in. It's not pretty, but, you know, it's not like, hey, let me tell you about this. And when there are things that we hold as beliefs and know that they're beliefs, there's, there's little objective proof for them. We have no doubt about them. 
you know, people who really believe that, you know, in the context of religion, for example, that Jesus was who the church says he is. And the things that he did and said are actually the things he didn't said. They tend not to be the people who are knocking on your door. The ones who are knocking on your door tend to be the people who are still unsure of their own belief. And the process goes something like this. If I am exposed to a new belief and I decide to adopt it, and I say, okay, this is, this is my new belief system. I believe that, you know, fill in the blank, right? That the, the deep state is running the world or whatever it may be. There's still a part of me that's not sure because I know that there's so much objective evidence that it's not true. And I also know that the, majority, the vast majority of people don't agree with me. They don't also believe this. And so what I would do or what, I, what the average person would do is two things. Number one, you look for data that conforms with your belief. In other words, you're looking for reinforcement of your belief system. And some people will build very, very resilient bubbles around themselves in their social media, in their friends and family, everything. They, They build these really resilient bubbles around themselves to prevent arguments that counter those arguments from coming into their world or from having to deal with them. And one of the downsides of social media is that it amplifies this. It actually does it for us. I have a really hard time. I I was thinking the other day that I should create a a new Facebook account, a new Twitter account, and just follow right-wingers so that I can see what they're saying, because I have no idea, right? With my Twitter account, my Facebook account, I never see right-wing stuff, or very, very rarely. And right-wingers on Twitter and Facebook very rarely see left-wing stuff. So in any case, number one, the first thing that people do is they build this system of belief reinforcement. And then the second thing that people typically do, once they're like 75% convinced of the reality of their, their new belief system, is they try to convert other people. And the reason for this is really simple. If I can convince another person that my particular belief is correct, it validates that belief for me, right? If I'm unsure that Jesus rose from the dead, but I can convince three people in an afternoon going door to door that Jesus rose from the dead and that they all go, yeah, okay, I, I, I get it now, then that further solidifies my belief. Whether it's in something religious or whether it's a conspiracy theory or it's some totally wacky thing like the, the, the world is flat. So, you know, we have to understand where this is coming from. And I think that, uh, you know, when somebody is in evangelism mode, that's when they're most vulnerable to being talked out of their belief because they're evangelizing to reinforce it. So if you have a family member or a friend or something, I mean, you know, just know that. But then you look at the content of some of these belief systems. You know, for example, uh, my friend was telling me that in the next week or two, you know, sometime before the Electoral College meets, there's going to be this giant event and it's going to cause Trump to be declared president. Well, this is what Donald Trump said. This was during a ceremony at the Oval Office. He was asked about Rudy Giuliani. And he said, Rudy's doing well, just spoke to him. He said, by the way, the case has been made. If you look at the polls, it was a rigged election. You look at the different states, the election was totally rigged. It's a disgrace to our country. It's like a third world country with those ballots pouring in from everywhere using machinery that nobody knows ownership, nobody knows anything about. He says, and now we find out what we can do about it but you'll see a lot of big things happening over the next couple of days, which is almost word for word from what my friend said to me yesterday. In other words, Trump is encouraging these bizarre beliefs, this cult belief system, you know, purely to keep his ass out of jail and to continue his fundraising grift. He has no interest in governing this country. If he did, 
he would have prepared us for the COVID. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Did you ever think that you would live long enough to see a president go AWOL? to where we have absolutely no precedent. I mean, he is literally missing. We have him for missing. four years. He's just been playing golf and doing rallies. That's it. Yeah, and now he's totally turned his back on this country and on the virus. And my comment is this. I believe that he honestly is committing negligent homicide, at the very mm-hmm. least. And I was listening to uh, a man whom I believe to be the greatest constitutional scholar in the country, and that would be Lawrence Tribe. I was listening to his argument on how Trump cannot pardon himself, and I'd like to know if you would agree with what he said, which I agree with. First of all, in the Constitution, it's worded in this way. It says the president will have the right to grant a pardon. And the key word right, is which grant. Is giving from one person to another. Exactly. It means giving it to someone else. And also, if he were able to pardon himself, that would mean exactly that he was above the law, because he could do anything, kill anyone, do anything, and then pardon himself. And that would mean he is, is above the law. And we know the president is not above the law. So I see no reason why he can't be charged with negligent homicide for just letting us all die and saying, gee, that's too bad. I'm sorry. He didn't even say that, actually. He has no shame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has no, no anything. I think He's that, you know, person. Carol, if on the one hand, the presidents enjoy something called sovereign immunity, which means that they cannot be sued for official acts, for things that they do while in office. Now, there is a gotcha, an exception to that, and that is if the acts are done with malice. Right. You can go after a political figure, you know, like a judge who throws somebody in jail because they don't like them or a legislator who or, you know, a president who lets people die. If they could prove that there was a meeting in the White House in the weeks after April 7th where they said, let's just let these people die. It's just blue states and it's mostly black people. If they could prove that. So then you could make the argument that Donald Trump didn't just fail to do his job but intentionally set up a situation where a quarter million, and they're saying a half million dead Americans by March or by April, where a half a million Americans died. And then I think you would have a case for manslaughter at the very least, and maybe even for negligent homicide or even homicide. But well, they, would ha- ha- they would have to make that case. You can't, you can't charge him with, uh, with a crime for just playing golf and doing rallies instead of being president. Yeah, I realize that. But on the other hand, the fact that there's so much circumstantial evidence to back that up after what he did yeah. on a- in April, that you might be able to, to make a pretty good case if you have a good lawyer. <laughs> Well, and under the law, under the Presidential Records Act, there, ha- there, are, there are supposed to be records of that meeting, notes from that meeting, or those meetings, there may have been more than one meeting, and, uh, you know, that would be produced as evidence in court, although, I, like I, I've been saying this for a while, I think the shredding machines are running full-time at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now. Carol, thank you for the call. So we need to be thinking right now about how to Trump-proof the presidency in the future. I mean, Donald Trump is causing all kinds of chaos and disasters and things are, frankly, I think going to get much worse before they get better. And I don't think they're going to get better until after January 21st or noon on January 20th. And that's assuming that absolute craziness doesn't happen. But there's a bunch of steps that we need to take from recalibrating or fixing how we do our elections to fixing how we handle money in politics to fixing the pardon power of the presidency to specifically saying that if a president is found to be a criminal, he or she can still be held to account. I mean, just straightforward stuff. And we need to be getting ready to do this. I lay it all out in a new video that you can find over at TomHartman.com.
And welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Let's uh, check in with our, our old friend Ani Zonneveld, the founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values. MPVUSA.org is the website. It's also the Twitter handle, MPVUSA, or Ani Zonneveld, A-N-I-Z-O-N-N-E-V-E-L-D. Ani, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you with us again. I, I understand that about 30% of American Muslims voted for Trump. What's going on in, in your community there? <laughs> they're not in my community. I can tell you that. They're not progressive, that's for sure. There you go. You know, looking back about 15 years or so, American Muslims are conservative at the heart of it because they are not for LGBT rights. They are not for women's reproductive rights. They are not for egalitarian values, progressive values, right? Inherently so. And they tend to also be business owners. And so for them, hanging on to the dollar is more important than the rights, economic rights and social justice rights for the rest of the, their fellow citizens. So it really comes from a very selfish perspective. And some of these are the older generation that tend to be more conservative, and they sort of bring their conservative values from wherever their home country is to the United States. So that's sort of like the historical background. And since for that thirty percent, um, yeah, exactly. Actually, I think it's thirty-five. So it's, ah. it's actually higher than that. Yeah, but since Obama, there was a shift to the Democratic Party, and so I think now. You know, what's remarkable, Tom, is that about 12% voted for Trump in the first election, and it went up to more than 30% in this election. And this is, you know, after the Muslim ban and all this demonizing of Muslims in general, etc. It's really, I don't know how people can wrap their head around it. We're seeing the United States uh, shifting toward the religious right. Uh, certainly the Supreme Court is shifting to, I, I'm not sure that all of America is, but you know we've got now a whole bunch of hardcore right-wing Catholics on the court. And as we saw recently, you know, in this case where they said that Governor Cuomo cannot close churches for public health purposes, which is yeah. bizarre <laughs> to me. I mean, it's absolutely bizarre <laughs> to me. And Amy Covid Barrett is saying that, you know, this is because the founders wouldn't have liked this. Well, the capital of the United States from 1790 until 1800 was Philadelphia. In 1793, Philadelphia had a terrible yellow fever epidemic. They didn't realize it was caused by mosquitoes back then. They just knew it happened in the summer. And a lot of the members of Congress fled. Uh, George Washington left town. And then it recurred three years later in 1796. And both the city of Philadelphia and the state of Pennsylvania imposed a quarantine on large chunks of, of downtown Philadelphia, just literally ordered people to evacuate. Leave your house, leave town, come back when the fall happens, when the leaves fall off the trees. And nobody who signed the Constitution, nobody who signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, stood up and said, oh, this is a violation of our freedoms. I mean, you know, there's just so wrong, these, these right-wingers. But in any case, I get from, you know, reading your newsletter and keeping track of what's going on over at Muslims for Progressive Values that that kind of ideology and some of those same strategies that are used by Christian and Catholic right-wingers in the United States are now being used by some conservative Muslims and that we're seeing, well, this trend with the Supreme Court and everything and the, and the Religious Freedom Reformation Act that, well, I, can you respond to that? Can you riff on that? Yeah. Totally. And, you know, as a Muslim organization, we are very much in tune with theology and how theocracy is a clear path to a failed state. You know, we, we address this issue in the Muslim-majority countries all the time, and the human rights abuses, the economic rights, etc., as you were speaking to earlier on. And the fact that we are going down the same trajectory in the United States is really troublesome and how they've used the Religious Freedom Reformation Act to justify discrimination in the name of religion and how the Supreme Court's position in that decision to say that, you know, congregations can, this policy of disallowing um, congregations to come together for religious purpose, you know, trumps or that's a terrible word to use, but, you know, overrides health, public health reasons. And it's really quite appalling, number one. And number two, the conservative Muslims have, have applauded this decision as well. And so what we're mm. seeing MPV starting to see is how 
the Muslim community is starting to borrow a lot of the modus operandi of the Christian right and also using Religious Reformation Act to justify their particular religious and discriminating belief systems. And so there's one particular case was the female genital mutilation cutting in Detroit and with there were federal charges against a doctor that actually did this illegal practice after office hours. And two of the girls that were cut were from Detroit and two of the girls that were cut from Minnesota, from Illinois district and from Rashida's district. And the judge threw it out for whatever particular reasons that I'll address in a minute. But this too, they were trying to use, the doctor who's Muslim was trying to use RIFRA, Religious Freedom Reformation Act, to justify female genital mutilation and cutting as a religious right, and when it actually has nothing to do with religion. So that's sort of how that's being utilized, which we really need to pay attention to. Doctors are now, people in the medical field under Trump are allowed to deny services based on if it contradicts their religious beliefs. So if someone um, LGBT comes into the office or if someone wants a birth control pill, these medical providers can deny services if they feel it contradicts their religious values. This is just ridiculous. How is this any different from Taliban? (laughs) Mm. Come on, people. Yeah. I remember all the pictures of those ISIS uh, pickup trucks with the guys with the giant flags and the, and the assault rifles, and I was getting deja vu as I was watching these Trump trains. But it, yeah, it, it seems yes, like you know, the Americans are, are learning the from this. Yeah, yeah, Americans are learning from this. Anyway, I know that this is not all unique to the United States. Macron and France have, I mean, France has, since the French Revolution, has been very much about being a secular state. What's going on there? Yeah, what's going on is that they're really starting to ramp up. They're finally starting to address the issue of radicalism within their community. It's very difficult as a progressive Muslim. You know, we've been working with Muslims there for many years, for about 10 years, and there's progressive mosques there. But, you know, you're very much like here in the United States trapped between the conservative radical Muslim community and the non-Muslim community that really puts on a lot of pressure on reforming, et cetera, et cetera. So the government, Macron's tone is very condescending about Muslims in general or Islam in general. But the fact is, you know, we're trying to reform from within, but it's a very difficult climate. You know, the beheading of the teacher was was appalling. And so sandwiched between those two extremes, and of course Macron's pandering to Le Pen, which is a right-wing candidate, so mm. we're not in a very good position. So this whole human rights perspective of, of Islam is still a challenge for us, even though we've been working in this realm for 13 years, but it's still, you know, getting that word out. There is a human rights-rooted interpretation of Islam. This is the kind of work that we're doing in, in Kenya, how we're reforming the Sharia court there to make it more women's rights compliant you know people don't know that but that's the kind of work that we do and and that's the kind of work that we're going to be talking about celebration of life which i'm happy that you're going to be attending yeah yeah and the celebration of life i'm sorry we're out of time you can learn all about it at mpvusa.org and sign up for it and whatever else and ani zanavel the founder and president of muslims for progressive values ani thank you keep up the great work thanks tom nice Great talking with you. Great to see you again. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. And this is from the introduction by Sahafia. When I first visited Raqqa Hassan's Facebook page in 2014, I think it's Rakia Hassan, in 2014, I was struck by her profile photo. The Syrian woman had paired a black hijab with a figure-hugging top that was embroidered with gold sequins. Her eyebrows were impeccably groomed, and bronzer contoured her cheekbones. It was a daring look, considering that she lived in Raqqa, the northern Syrian city that was, at the time, controlled by the most brutal Islamist group in the world. Most striking, though, was the defiant expression on Rakia's face, a defiance reflected in each one of her Facebook posts. Everything about the petite woman screamed, I am here and I will not be silenced. Rakia was a Sahafia, a woman journalist, who secretly reported on the crimes of ISIS from inside Raqqa. But she was no ordinary reporter, at least by mainstream media standards. The 31-year-old of Kurdish descent wasn't employed by a major news outlet. She never had a byline or a dateline and was never trained to cover warfare. She hadn't conducted any interviews, and she certainly wasn't impartial. She participated in an anti-government protest and openly criticized Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. Online, Rakia was fearless, even though vocal opponents of ISIS were often swiftly executed. The citizens Sahafia wrote in chilling detail under a pen name, Nisan Ibrahim, about the atrocities the group was waging on the people of Raqqa. She shared her reports on Facebook, sometimes posting several times a day. As Rakia amassed a large social media following, her friends advised her to take down the photos of herself that were viewable to the public to protect her identity, but she refused. A philosophy graduate at the University of Aleppo, Rakia was known for the personal, poetic, and somber tone of her social media posts, which were always written in Arabic. She wavered between reporting what she'd witnessed and writing about how she felt. In December 2014, less than a year after ISIS declared Raqqa the capital of its caliphate, she posted the following. In Syria, life and dignity have become two parallel lines that never meet. Rakia mostly referred to ISIS as Daesh, the acronym for al-Dawa al-Islayah, uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Greater Syria, which has reportedly drawn the ire of some ISIS commanders as it strips the terror group's label of its reference to Islam. Daesh has closed all internet cafes in the countryside, and most likely in the city too, the citizen Sahafia wrote in June 2015. Without the internet, we will lose our only way of communicating. Dear God, emigration is a loss of dignity and a form of humiliation, while staying here is hell. Dear God, where should we go? What Rakia presented in her harrowing posts was an authentic account of the events unraveling on the ground in Raqqa. Those accounts came at a time when few Westerners could report from within Syria, but they nonetheless commanded the international journalistic narrative on the country from afar. One of Rakia's final posts on Facebook was also her most unsettling. I'm in Raqqa and I've received death threats, she wrote on July 20th, 2015. When ISIS soldiers arrest me and kill me, it will be okay, because while they will cut off my head, I'll still have dignity, which is better than living in humiliation. Shortly after that post, Rakia was abducted by ISIS and never heard from again. In January 2016, her brother received confirmation from the terror group that she had been murdered along with five other women. At the time of this writing, Rakia's body has not been returned to her family. Well before Rakia was killed, I wondered what her story was. Why did she turn to writing and citizen journalism, despite knowing that death would be a very likely outcome of her outspokenness? Why did she choose the pen name Nisan, which means April in Arabic? How did she reconcile the identity she presented online with what was expected of her at home or by the society she lived in? Much like Rakia, scores of women in or from the Arab world and broader Middle East have quietly and courageously risked their lives to write about the coming apart of their region. These women are fierce reporters who have helped shape the narratives of perhaps the most important moments in their homeland's modern history, a time of failed revolutions and violent warfare, widespread political and social upheaval, and the worst refugee crisis since the end of the Second World War. 
And yet, despite their access, expertise, and the obstacles they must overcome in order to do their jobs, they haven't received as much attention as their Western and often white male peers. Our Women on the Ground, this book, presents intimate and rarely heard accounts of what it's like for a woman to report on a region she hails from. The stories of the 19 Sahafiat, whose essays make up this collection, are crucial, not only because they have contributed to our understanding of what is transpiring in some of the most dangerous countries and protracted conflicts in the world, but also because they intrepidly crush stereotypes of what it means to be an Arab or Middle Eastern woman today, especially in the era of U.S. President Donald Trump, the rise of populism, and the far right in Europe and elsewhere, and ISIS. Arab women are often misunderstood on multiple levels and by multiple groups. On one hand, an Arab woman may be victimized or pitied by outsiders who think her to be submissive, oppressed, or subjugated. She's occasionally boxed into one identity, whereby, for example, her Arab identity is incorrectly conflated with a Muslim one, and she is frequently exoticized or superficially celebrated. On the other hand, an outspoken Arab woman is sometimes deemed improper or an anomaly by both outsiders and the society around her. Professionally, she might be considered less of a threat than her male peers or not taken seriously, and she is sometimes actively silenced or passively unheard. This anthology is, in part, an effort to disrupt such flimsy stereotypes. The Sahafiat come from different generations, faiths, and nationalities, reflecting the diversity of an entire region. They are writers, reporters, broadcast journalists, and photojournalists. Our Women on the Ground is the book. I think this is absolutely fascinating that we survived an authoritarian coup or an authoritarian takeover attempt, for lack of a better phrase. And I think it's really important that we talk about it. And I'm using that word rather than the F word because I think that it's, it's not as loaded. It doesn't mean multiple things to multiple people. I think everybody gets what authoritarianism is. And authoritarianism is fundamentally distinct from and in opposition to democracy, to a Republican form of government. And, you know, we have to recognize and acknowledge that. And here was this attempt to just, you know, take us down. So we've got that. We've got Pearl Harbor Day. You know, my dad joined the army fresh out of high school because he wanted to go fight the authoritarians, the fascists of Europe. Did yours? Because that generation was the original Antifa. They were the people who said, yeah, we are anti-fascist. And isn't it bizarre? Or isn't it arguably, doesn't it make perfect sense that the people who are the most authoritarian, like Kelly Loeffler, are the ones who delight in trashing the idea of being opposed to fascism. They're the ones who are saying, oh, Antifa, oh my God, you know, we can't have Antifa. Antifa's, you know, coming to get us. Antifa is anti-fascist. That's what it stands for. And I see it in the contrast between Ron DeSantis and Javier Becerra. Well, first of all, DeSantis. I think what the contrast between these two men shows is the crusade to turn America into an authoritarian nation that Ron DeSantis was fully invested in. The stopping of that by the Biden victory and efforts to roll that back by, you know, people like Becerra being nominated for HHS secretary. Now, this is not to say he's Bernie Sanders. He's not. But you know, if you've ever studied the history of authoritarianism anywhere in the world, I mean, if you've ever read a good book about the history of, the, of World War II in Europe, for example, or the rise of authoritarianism and fascism in Germany or Italy or Spain in the 1930s or Pinochet in Argentina in the 1960s, if you've ever, you know, gotten into this stuff, you get what is really going on here. I mean, you know, that Donald Trump is a full-blown authoritarian. And authoritarians don't come to power all by themselves. They have helpers in every single situation. And now we're learning that Ron DeSantis is a helper. And not just like the normal Republican helper, like the 220-some-odd Republican members of Congress who still refuse to say that Joe Biden won the White House. 
but a helper in as much as he thought that if he could fake the COVID data in Florida, if he could hide the COVID data in Florida from the public, that that would help make sure that Trump got reelected in Florida. And Florida is a swing state or can be a swing state. It was a swing state that decided the 2000 election. And there was every possibility that it would decide this election as well. And DeSantis made the political calculation, and so did Donald Trump, that if they could just bury the data and pretend that, you know, hey, it's just the flu and all this kind of stuff, that it would help Donald Trump get reelected. And if Donald Trump got reelected, he would make sure that Ron DeSantis gets reelected in 2022 and that DeSantis holds on to power. And he might even kick, you know, if, if somebody wants to challenge Marco Rubio, he's up for reelection in two years. Maybe DeSantis will do it. Who knows? You know, I frankly doubt it, but that DeSantis might have higher ambitions and that in an authoritarian regime, as democracy has been completely killed, he could rise to that. I mean, what we saw in this authoritarian attempt to finally end democracy in the United States, and yes, I will acknowledge from the founding of this republic to this day, we have been half oligarchy, half democracy. And we've gone back and forth and back and forth throughout the years between one or the other. But we've always had this thread of democracy that flowed through the arc of American history. And this was a final attempt. The Trump presidency, the 2016 election, where he had a lot of help from foreign autocrats who hate democracy, and the 2020 election, where he had a lot of help from foreign autocrats who hate democracy, flooding Facebook, flooding Twitter. I got one of these uh, tweets. Somebody tweeted at me this morning. I looked at their profile. They had joined just before the election. They followed 38 people. They had zero followers. And they're tweeting this you know, crap at me. I just you know, blocked them. I mean, it's just, it's like, okay, you know, another foreign troll. And this, this is what helped bring Donald Trump to power. This, these are the people he hung out with throughout his presidency. You know, where, what was the first country he went to visit? Traditionally in the United States, American presidents first visit a Democratic ally. Canada, the United Kingdom, France, whatever it may be. They, you know, traditionally you, you visit other democracies. We're part of that club. Where did Trump go? Saudi Arabia. A brutal, violent, misogynistic dictatorship where women have no rights. People who are members of the royal family have basically all, the only rights in the country and all the wealth in the country. And dissent is not tolerated. Wilbur Ross, Donald Trump's Commerce Secretary, went with Trump on that trip. And when he came home, he was talking to a reporter and he said, Boy, it's just amazing how popular the Saudi government is. We drove all through, you know, uh, whatever, it may, I think it was Riyadh, but I could be wrong. He said, we drove all through this city and there wasn't a single protest sign. There wasn't a single protester in the streets. Right. So you've got Ron DeSantis on one end, and then you've got Joe Biden nominating Javier Becerra. Javier Becerra has worked for 20 years for Medicare for All. He defended it on Fox News, for God's sake. He's the guy who has been fighting to overturn Bill Clinton's 1996 decision to say to pharmaceutical companies, if the federal government pays, you know, prior to 1996, when the federal government paid for research on drugs, when those drugs got sold, either they got sold at a reasonable price or some of the money went back to the federal government. And Clinton blew that up. And one of the most outspoken opponents to that effort from 96 until today is Javier Becerra. In fact, he, he spoke out about this when Remdesivir was found to be useful against COVID. Remdesivir was funded with $100 billion. Well, it was among a, a collection of drugs that were funded with $100 billion of U.S. taxpayer money. And and he was saying that the company should not get all the profit. Well, of course, the company got all the profit. Donald Trump is the president. But this is the guy. 
You know, I think Martin Luther King said the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends towards or tends towards justice. I think in the contrast between, you know, Ron DeSantis and Javier Becerra, we are seeing that arc. And I think it's a really good thing. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Eric in Warsaw, Wisconsin. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I just wanted to talk about a concept here, and it's more on the spiritual end of things versus political. What we've lived through in this last year, I don't think we could really describe it any way else other than a hellscape mentally for a lot of people, most people. And mm-hmm. what I'm trying to figure out is this line between acceptance and acceptable. And what I mean by that is, we need to accept the tragedies that have occurred over the last year in particular, whether it's coronavirus, whether it's Donald Trump's fascism, racial and social injustice. We need to accept those facts so we can create that shared reality. You know, the one that says the sky is blue and a bird is a bird, things like that. Mm -hmm. So we need to be involved in that story as painful as it is. But how do we accept a painful reality and not slip into believing the causes of that pain are acceptable. Can you get a little more specific? Sure. Um, what I'm getting at is we need to accept, you know, and stay grounded in reality, even if it's painful. But how do we not normalize that reality? How do we not say this is, you know, as a coping mechanism, we try to normalize it and say this is acceptable. Because this I think is the way the things are. Of- yeah, I mean, if you use the coronavirus as the example, I mean, all we have to do is compare ourselves with literally any other country on Earth. We have the, you know, the, the, the worst death rate and spread rate for this virus of any developed country in the world and worse than the vast majority of undeveloped countries or, or developing countries. And I don't think anybody thinks that's acceptable or normal. And everybody is looking, I think, is looking forward to a new president coming in and saying, we're going to stop this virus. I realize that there are some Republican holdouts who are listening to right-wing hate radio who still don't believe that the virus is real. And we hear these stories from nurses about, you know, people who are, are Trump humpers who are to their last dying breath insisting that they only have the flu. But right. it's, you know, is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? I mean, is that the example or is there something that is more well, transcendent or existential? I guess more zooming out a little bit, just looking at kind of all the things that a year ago we would have said, oh, no way. You know, there's no way we would ever accept mm. this as a people. And or five years ago. I, I'm, right, exactly. Five years ago or, or 40 years ago, to be probably more specific. Or, you know, things have slid, but let's just say we're reaching kind of the apex here. And what I'm concerned with is sort of that tendency we have as human beings to normalize things in order to survive mentally, you know. Yeah, it's a survival mechanism. It's an internal psychological survival mechanism. Right. And what I'm saying is, I think for some people, and I'm I'm speaking for myself here, but I'm sure there's got to be at least one or two other people out there, we're having this incredible pain in accepting what we see in front of us. Yes, this truly is happening. But I'm not going to ever say this is acceptable or or normalize it and go about my day and say, yep, this is just the way things are. And I feel like that's sort of an attitude that I witness out in public. Now, I recognize that could be regional. 
and you know, I'm not. I can't speak for for places outside of uh, my immediate area. Well, also, Eric, when people are in the middle of a circumstance or a situation that they know is wrong or bizarre or whatever, they tend to be more focused on surviving day to day than protesting right. the event. Right. You know, so if there are people, you know, walking by me without masks rather than, you know, yelling about, oh, my God, you know, how can you be so stupid or, you know, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be this way. Trump shouldn't have let this happen. I just step out of the way. Right. It doesn't mean I'm accepting right. it. And, you know, from their point of view, my behavior would indicate that I think it's all normal. Obviously, I don't. I'm not sure what else. I mean, what's the therefore? Where are you going with this, Eric, to take it out of the realm of philosophy and into the realm of practical (laughs) response or maybe connecting the two? Okay. Yeah, sure. I guess what I'm saying was, and this, this kind of came out of a conversation I had had with my mom, and she's more of the... You know, not involved type, definitely a good heart, um, definitely, you know, aware of things, but not actively perhaps doing anything to help push in a different direction. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. And what I see in them is sort of a, it's almost a, it's almost a denial. Um, And Mm -hmm. sort of like, well, this is just how it is. And. And that's it. And so I guess what I'm saying, my concern is, have we crossed a line as people that we can't walk back from? We've accepted things that, as a society, we would not have said we would accept a year ago, and now we do. That's a really good question. And I think that for the Republicans among us, that many of Mm -hmm. them have, I mean, you've got Republicans out there right now openly calling for martial law. And I'm not talking about whack jobs. I'm talking about one of the top guys that Trump appointed to the Pentagon. You know, I'm talking about Michael Flynn, Flynn, the former director of national security, openly calling for martial law. So, yeah, I think that a chunk of the Republican Party has gone full fascist and, you know, they've stepped out of their we're just corporate shill mode and gone full authoritarian. And I don't think they're going to go back. Whether there will be a cultural backlash against this. Yeah, and we're seeing the same thing, by the way, among these so-called militia groups. Whether there will be a cultural backlash, whether there will be an awakening, whether there can be a healing, time will tell. Eric, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So for our Tom Hartman Insider video that's available over at TomHartman.com, I'm talking about Donald Trump just completely giving in to Erdogan of Turkey, the president of Turkey, the dictator of Turkey now, and this theory that Jared Kushner okayed the killing, at least the capture, perhaps the killing of Jamal Khashoggi to Mohammed bin Salman, and that Erdogan has the tape of it, and that when he called up Donald Trump and said, I want you to pull out of Syria and give me those Kurds so I can kill them and take that land, that he did it because Erdogan threatened him. And then Erdogan comes to the United States a week or two later and gets a whole state dinner thing. Check it all out. It's over at TomHartman.com. I think you'll find it fascinating. Marsha in Fairfield, Iowa. Hey, Marsha, what's on your mind today? I followed this. I've never seen it linked on television, but... I recall when Trump first came into office that Kushner was in big trouble with his 666 building, and he got an unprecedented yeah. amount of money from the UAE. So follow right. that to Over the a UAE, billion the dollars. first country. Um, oh, yeah. So then we go to UAE as the first country that Trump visits, and then we go to the... Well, actually, that was Saudi Arabia, show. but it was right, it's yeah. right next door. Okay, thank you. So then we go to Khashoggi being dismembered in Turkey, and the Turkey government admitted they had information, but they didn't release it, so they didn't bust Kushner's mm-hmm. friends. And then right. suddenly we have our allies, the Kurds, who backed us fighting ISIS. I mean, they were valiant, valiant, you know, fighters, and they just get completely slaughtered. It was pure genocide to give Turkey a favor because they gave, see, I think that whole thing follows. Well, Turkey gives Trump $2 million a year in licensing fees for the Trump Towers in Turkey. And Erdogan, you know, came right out and said that if Trump tried to prevent him from slaughtering the Kurds, he was going to cut off Trump's licensing fees. 
I thought that was the most oh, so underreported those... story of the year. And, well, and, yeah, I and, then, and then Trump stabbed, stabbed the Kurds in the back. Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors at the very least and treason at the most have been committed during this Trump administration. And it has almost always been to get money. Trump has these yeah, properties in money. these places. Yeah. And he's working. He's working on a deal with the Saudis. You know, he was literally planning Trump Tower Moscow up until the day of the election, the day after the election, when he won, suddenly he had to stop. He was going to go full tilt boogie. Uh, You know, he was assuming he was going to lose. The whole election thing was was an effort to, number one, get more money out of NBC for a new apprentice show. And number Mm -hmm. two, to steal as much money as he could raise. Right. Which he's been doing all along. I'm guessing he's he's made several hundred million dollars off being president. Well, hell, we know he took one hundred and seventy million dollars in the first weeks after the election. He's taken over. It's well over two hundred million now that Trump has raked in since the election. I got three fundraising emails from him this morning. I got one from Laura Trump. I got one from Donald Trump. I got one from the Trump fundraising committee. I didn't get one today from Rudy Giuliani, which, you know, kind of is explained by where he (laughs) is. Well, he's busy getting specialized medicine that no one else will get. I'm guessing, yeah, I'm guessing that he's getting the whole thing. He's getting the steroids. He's getting the remdesivir. He's getting the uh, monoclonal antibody treatment that Donald Trump got. No doubt about it. But I think you're right. In the meantime, our country is going down the toilet. Anyway, I think Kushner's behind a lot of this, and I just think he's like just this evil, <laughs> you know, person in the, in the back corner is really doing a lot I of this. I agree. Okay, and I'm not so a big I fan have... of holding children to account for the sins of their parents, but Jared Kushner's father went to prison for fraud, and he yeah. has been a mentor to Jared. He was the one who, when he got out of prison, he told Jared, you need to, number one, buy a newspaper, now, so you can have some influence in New York, a New York newspaper. Jared bought the New York Examiner. Number two, you need to buy a high-profile, high-status building. Jared overpaid by maybe as much as 30% for 666 Fifth Avenue, over a, a, a billion dollars. I think it was 1.4. And number three, you need to marry a very wealthy, high-profile woman. And Jared married Ivanka Trump. You know, he just basically did what his daddy told him to do. His his father has been a mentor to him and all this stuff and apparently continues to consult with him. And I, I just think we're looking at a family of grifters here, both the Trump family and the Kushner family. Absolutely. And they've left so much so much damage behind them. But I would like to see, and I never never hear Biden talking about this because there's so much he really has to do. I would like to see him somehow honor the Kurds and make some kind of reparations if it's at all possible. So, you know, I'm against war, but these guys really, you know, men, women, everybody were fighting. thousands of them have been slaughtered. Yes, and it was not, just, it's hideous. So that's my comment. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well said, okay. Marcia. Thank you very much for the call. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then this is something, you know, we look at the obvious stuff, you know, the surface stuff, kids in cages, Trump spouting racist crap, you know, talking about Antifa and Black Lives Matter and everything else. And so much of the of the grift gets missed. And I think the grift is the entire point of the Trump administration. Is hot. You know, Donald Trump said when he was running for president, I'll be the first person ever to make money running for president. I'm convinced he did. And I think he's the first person ever to monetize the presidency in the way that he has. Now, yeah, other presidents, after they leave office, they sell books, they do speaking tours, you know, they get jobs running the Carlisle Group, they monetize the presidency post-presidency. But Trump is the first guy to do it while he's still in the White House. James in Spokane, Washington. Hey, James, what's up? His name is Dr. Bernard Julius Otto Kuhn. He was in World War I. He became a physician after World War I. His teenage daughter was a mistress of uh, Joseph Goebbels. And uh, when that became inconvenient, they moved him to Hawaii, where they needed some Occidental spies. They landed in Honolulu August 15th of 1935. From then on, they were transmitting every bit of evidence they could, all information about all the boats in harbor, who left, who came in, to the uh, Japanese embassy there for, what, six years? And uh, hmm. that had a lot to do with it, how and when and where they hit. Wow. So a Nazi sympathizer, the father of the mistress of Goebbels, was setting yeah, up the Japanese... Go ahead. Her name was Susie Ruth Coons, K-U-H-N. 
And he happened to be a close friend of Heinrich Himmler, as a matter of fact. That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for that, James. I, I'm, I swear, I've got the smartest listeners on earth. I really appreciate the call. David in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's up? How you doing? Uh, I wanted to go back Good. a little bit on Trump, uh, him destroying this country. It's going to be very hard for Biden to put everybody back together to unify. Why? Because as Trump, from what I hear, he's going to have a rally in the middle of when they're swearing Biden, the president of the United States. He's doing this to keep us divided, to keep his people on one side, to just focus on him, and then the, uh, the rest of us just focus on Biden. This guy, I mean, he's destroying America. We have to wake up and watch every move he's doing out. He's a wrecking ball right out the door. He's destroying everything in the building before he leaves. And we need to put a better eye on this. And he's doing it for the most base of motives, the most disgusting of motives. He's doing it to make more money, and he's doing it to keep from going to jail for all the cons that he has been doing literally his whole entire life. I mean, New York State is fixing to put him in jail for tax fraud, real estate fraud, bank fraud, just as a, at the starting point. And then he's got this massive con going where he's, you know, begging people to give him money so that, you know, he can continue the con. It's mind boggling. David, spot on. Thank you. Brian in Minneapolis. Hey, Brian, what's up? Donald Trump has an infinite capacity to corrupt. And all he has to do is corrupt 37 votes in the Electoral College and he gets reelected. And I am scared to death that he has corrupted our system. He's been in the state houses. He's talking to the governors. And he has showed us in the past he will do anything to get his way. And I'm hoping you can reassure me that that's not possible, Tom. You've identified the one last thing that's available to Donald Trump, and that is that if he can bribe enough members of the Electoral College, those high-minded individuals that the Constitution says may not be members of any political body, they cannot hold political office, they can never have held political office, in fact. If he can get, you said 37, I'm not sure of the number, but I'll take your word for it, Brian. If he can bribe or bully or convince or cajole or whatever, enough electors to become what are called faithless electors. In other words, not yes. if, you, if, if it's an elector from Georgia, they're supposed to cast their electoral votes for Joe Biden. If, and if he can get some of them to cast their electoral votes for Donald Trump instead, and this happens, I believe, on uh, December, I think on December 14th, they meet. And I think on December 20th, their vote is certified, as it were, by Congress, although I may have my dates wrong. But it's in that neighborhood. If he can pull that off, then yeah, he might have succeeded in finally ultimately corrupting our system. And I'm surprised, frankly, that I'm not seeing more speculation about this in the media. Maybe people are afraid of giving him ideas, but you don't have to be afraid of that. He's already got those ideas. Uh, Brian, don't walk off the ledge yet. You know, there's well, there will be extraordinary he, pressure on only, those folks. And if that happens, it'll end up before the Supreme Court, and that, which is what Trump is hoping for by the way. Go ahead. Well, he's got 306 supposedly electoral votes right now. If they drop him down to 269 electoral votes, then it's in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're right. Yes. Yeah. And so all he has to do is, is corrupt 37 electoral members of the Electoral College. And these are actual human beings. And they actually have free will. They can vote however they want. And in some states, they would be in violation of state law if they break that. But, I mean, the Constitution is fairly clear that the whole point of the Electoral College was in case the people vote for somebody who is corrupt, that the Electoral <laughs> College will save the day. I mean, that was literally the idea back then, you know, that Hamilton lays out in Federalist 54. I think it's in the, it's in the middle numbers there in the Federalist Papers. Brian? It ain't over yet, and uh, we just have to keep uh, ever vigilant. Brian, thank you. Thank you for the call. Joe in Cupertino, California. Hey, Joe, what's up? Almost going to be 500,000 Americans that are going to be dead by February. I saw President yeah. Trump appoint Vice President Pence to the head of the COVID task force. That's a good, short, old-fashioned impeachment hearing will get this brought to the attention of the American people. He needs to be impeached. I can't see him and Mother walking into the sunset, and history doesn't hold him accountable. The second uh, 
what Section 2 says the House of Representatives, Section 3 says the Senate gets to decide. The removal of an office is probably going to be a foregone conclusion, but I don't ever want him to run for office again. And if he's impeached and they're successful in doing that, I can guarantee that he cannot run for an official office ever again. I don't know. Your mind. Well, the impeachment clause of the Constitution prevents anybody who's been removed from office upon impeachment from ever running for any kind of political office. He couldn't run for dog catcher. But he's going to continue this campaign as long as he possibly can because it's it's a way of milking his supporters of their cash. And that's what Donald Trump does for a living. I don't think well, he's we a serious we got to change the narrative we, we, at all. We're the, char- we're the party in charge now. We need to change the narrative. And the narrative needs to be we want accountability for the actions of this administration at any cost. I don't think yeah. that the people of America are going to tolerate uh, letting them walk away unscathed. Well, not at the cost of the destruction of, of America or American values, but I, I'm with you uh, that, that they need to be held accountable. And if there isn't accountability, just like there wasn't accountability for Nixon, there wasn't accountability for Iran-Contra, for Reagan and Bush, and there wasn't accountability for lying us into a war with George W., uh, sadly. Joe, thanks. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 